Let's turn together to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. We're going to read five verses, verse 1 through 5. Galatians 6, verse 1. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. For each one will bear his own load. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we have a reason to gather together on Sunday mornings and to sing praises to your holy name and recall the things that you've done and to pray to you, to lay our cares before you, and to hear from you, Lord. Thank you that all of this awesome privilege is possible because of who you are and what you've done. If you were any different, we wouldn't be here. If you hadn't done what you had done, we wouldn't be here. Lord, thank you for this awesome privilege of enjoying all of these things because we're enjoying you, Lord. You're so amazing. And I pray that you would speak to us through the scriptures this morning, that we would uh, have ears to hear and hearts that are open. I pray that you would remove the typical distractions and the typical dullness that we have, Lord, when it comes to hearing from you. Lord, we recognize that hearing from you is what everything depends upon. So I pray that we would hang on your words, Lord, that we would listen intently, that we would listen as our life truly does depend on it, Lord. And Father, I pray that we would be encouraged through your word, we would be challenged, we would be changed. And above all, Lord, you would be honored and you would receive praise from us, Lord, ceaselessly because of who you are and what you've done. Thank you for this time. Please use this time and do a mighty work among us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, we've been going through the book of Galatians, and as we enter into the sixth and the last chapter of the book of Galatians, I'd like to remind us all of a fact that we should all be familiar with, we should all be familiar with this fact, and we should call to mind regularly. And the fact is this, that there, are, that there were no chapter or verses in the original books of the Bible. That's a fact we should all be familiar with. When Paul wrote this book, he didn't put a number six uh, here in front of verse one when he was writing this. And I say that because it's important for us as we start chapter six to realize that chapter six is not herme uh, hermetically sealed off from what goes before it and from the rest of the book. Chapter 6 is organically and naturally connected to chapter 5. Furthermore, chapter 5 is organically and naturally connected to what's before it and so forth. And when we read the book of Galatians, 
we need to understand that we're reading a book that is an integrated whole. The parts of Galatians need to be interpreted in light of the whole. And this is true of almost all the books in the Bible. And I say almost all the books because there are books in the Bible like the book of Psalms, which it doesn't necessarily work like that. But I hope when you read the Bible, brothers and sisters, you read it and you don't get burdened down by the chapters and the verses and you're aware of the fact that um, what you're reading is connected uh, with everything else that's written in the books. And it must be interpreted that way. We, when, we read the, when we read the Bible, especially when we're just reading a part of the Bible, we need to find its place in the stream of thought, in the stream of thought that the author uh, has been laying down. So we're going to do that just briefly, orient ourselves to the book of Galatians before we jump into chapter 6 here. Galatians is the earliest book in the New Testament, and it tells us a lot about early Christianity. It was written by Paul to a group of congregations, a group of Christian congregations, in the Roman province of Galatia, which today on a map is in central Turkey. And the whole book of Galatians, the entire purpose of the book, and make sure this is clear in your mind, the entire purpose of the book of Galatians, from the greeting to the final amen, is to argue one thing. Now, some letters in the New Testament, they'll argue many things, They'll talk about many different points and topics. The book of Galatians is written to argue for one thing, and that is the all-important doctrine of righteousness through faith alone. This is what the purpose of the book of Galatians is about, to argue for the all-important doctrine of righteousness through faith alone. The doctrine of righteousness through faith alone is the core doctrine of Christianity. You can pick that up from the intensity of this letter because that's the doctrine that's being challenged. The doctrine of righteousness through faith alone is the core doctrine of Christianity. If you do not understand righteousness through faith alone, you do not understand Jesus Christ. If you do not believe in righteousness through faith alone, then the Bible has news for you. You do not believe in Jesus Christ if you don't believe in righteousness through faith alone. Now you might say, what do you mean? I, I think I believe in Jesus Christ. The book of Galatians is written to people like you who think you believe in Jesus Christ. The book of Galatians is written to people who profess to believe in Jesus Christ. But Paul says in the book of Galatians, if you miss this doctrine of righteousness through faith alone, you and Jesus have nothing to do with each other. You do not know Jesus at all. So this doctrine should make us all uh, lean forward and make sure that we understand. When we read a book like Galatians, we should say to ourselves, I need to get this doctrine right. If I lose this, I lose everything. What is the doctrine of righteousness through faith alone? The word doctrine just means teaching, by the way. What is the teaching of righteousness through faith alone? What is the truth of this? And it's simply this. That God requires us to be righteous. Do you believe that Christianity changes that? You know that once a once, long time ago, God required us to be righteous, but now he doesn't? Is that the doctrine of Christianity? That since the coming of Jesus, God's standards have been lowered, right? Is that what we believe in as Christianity? He used to require righteousness and perfection and perfect love. I mean, you read the law of Moses and that's what 
righteousness is. It's perfect love. Love for God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love for your neighbor as yourself. And God used to require that, but now that Jesus has come, he doesn't. No, that's not the case. God requires us to be righteous. Why? Because God by nature is righteous. And God cannot look approvingly upon unrighteousness and upon sin. God cannot look approvingly upon sin. He looks upon it with disapproval, displeasure. The Bible says wrath and anger, actually. And God's justice, which comes from his nature again. This isn't some system that God is uh, obligated to. This is out of his own being. God's justice requires the destruction and punishment of sin and sinners. True? True? And so the doctrine of righteousness through faith is against this background, that God requires righteousness. Acceptance with God, acceptance into the kingdom of heaven, Jesus taught, is on God's terms, and those terms are righteousness. That's the terms. Now the testimony of the Bible from beginning to end and the testimony of experience is that every human being is a sinner, and that no one is righteous. That's the testimony of the Bible. So God requires righteousness, and if you're not righteous, you're going to be punished and destroyed. And yet, on the other hand, all are sinners, and no one is righteous. Can anyone say here today that they have loved God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength? That means you keep the law and you don't sin. And that you've loved your neighbor as you love yourself. That you care about other people, even your enemies, just as much as you care about yourself. Now, if you did that, the Bible says you wouldn't sin. Paul says love works no ill toward his neighbor. And therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So if you can't say that you've never sinned, or if, if you can say that you've never sinned, then you can raise your hand and say, yes, I, um, I love perfectly. I keep the law. But if you are like me, brothers and sisters, you sin every day. Every single day I do things that are not loving towards others, especially the ones I love. Or at least, you know, care about. And so the testimony of the Bible and experience is that there is no one righteous. And the Bible says that no one can be righteous by the law. No one can be righteous by their own works. No one can be righteous by what they do. That is, if I wrote up a plan for us and said, okay, guys, God's term is righteousness, and I've come up with a plan. I've come up with a a list. I've come up with a set of commandments that if we keep, then we'll be righteous, and therefore we'll be accepted by God. We'd all fail. We'd all blow it. There is no commandments that can make us righteous. The problem, of course, isn't the law or the commandments, but the problem is us. We are sinners. So no one is righteous and no one can be righteous, the Bible says, by our own works and doing. Do you believe that? Or are you still unconvinced? Do you still think that, ah, I know the Bible says that, Eli, but I think it's just been because of my circumstances in the past. In the future, I think I'm going to get it. You won't. And so it's against this background and this backdrop that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, the Bible says. Christ came into the world to save sinners by dying for 
our sins. And the Bible tells us that all the sins of man, all the sins of this world that deserve wrath and deserve destruction in God's patience and in God's mercy and in God's amazing grace for humanity, he sent Jesus into the world and he, it, the Bible says he took our sins and he laid them upon Christ the sacrifice. This is what a sacrifice is all about. It's something taking your place, substituting in your place and bearing your punishment. And so Jesus had the sins of the world and your sins and my sins laid on him and he paid the price that we should have paid. He took the penalty. He was our sacrifice. And the Bible tells us that after Jesus died for our sins, he rose from the dead as the first fruits of the new creation. So through the death and resurrection of Jesus, there's now a new existence that we can take part in. And Christ offers eternal life freely, here's the good news, freely to everyone. That's what he says throughout the Bible and even at the very end. If anybody's thirsty, come to the waters and drink freely. Because of what he's done, eternal life is offered to us without cost, without charge. He doesn't say, you know, I did my part. I did what I needed to do. And now if you keep the commandments and if you keep the, do the rules and if you do what you're supposed to do, then maybe we can make a deal. The difference is Jesus has done everything for us and he now offers eternal life freely to us all. This is the good news, that if we simply believe in him, the Bible says, if we simply trust in his offer, trust in his promise, trust in what he has done, God will count you as righteous. That's what righteousness through faith alone is. God counts you as righteous. In his judgment, you are righteous because of what Christ did. Not because God is blind to, to reality, not because God turns a blind eye, but because as a sinner, your sins are taken away through Jesus. As a believer in Jesus, your sins are removed as far as the east is from the west by his sacrifice. And all believers in Jesus stand impeccable before God. Impeccable means without sin. And so God counts us righteous through what Jesus has done, not through what we do. That's the glory of the gospel. That's the good news. That's what righteousness through faith is all about. Every Christian can say, based upon God's terms of righteousness, he requires righteousness, I'm going to make it into the kingdom of heaven. And people might say, well, what are you saying, that you don't sin? No, I'm not saying that I don't sin. I'm saying that I'm righteous through Jesus Christ. I'm saying that Jesus Christ has provided for me righteousness. The Bible talks about it all throughout. And God counts me as righteous and so I'm acceptable, not because of my own works, which evidently are not righteous, but because of his sacrifice. Amen. That's the good news. Paul says this uh, in many ways in the book of Galatians, but in chapter 2, verse 16, he says that we know that a man is not justified. That means righteous or counted righteous by God. A man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Why? Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. How many of you have tried to be justified by law? 
You've, you've attempted it. You've tried to get up in the morning and do all the right things so that God can say, I count you as righteous. It doesn't work. At the end of the day, you're always disappointed of what you've done. And, and even if you think you had a good day, which you didn't, by the way, you have to have a good day the next day too, right? And you have to have a good day the next day. You have to have a good day. You have to always have a good day. It doesn't work. That's why Jesus came. Look at chapter 2, verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, Christ died in vain or needlessly or for nothing. So Jesus died on the cross because we needed him to provide righteousness for us. The, the death of Jesus should tell us, I can't be righteous by what I do. I needed him. If you could be righteous by what you do, Christ died for nothing. So it's actually a great insult to pursue justification by works. It's an insult to Christ. Now Paul had to write this book because there were false teachers who came to the province of Galatia. You can read about them in Acts chapter 15. And they said, no, this is all wrong. This teaching on righteousness through faith alone is wrong. So, you know, people today in the 21st century say that it's wrong, and that's nothing new. This is all wrong, they said. Yes, of course you have to believe in Jesus, but believing in Christ isn't enough to be righteous before God. You also need to work and keep the commandments. And it was these false teachers who drew forth the book of Galatians, the most urgent and passionate letter in the New Testament. In the first part of the book of Galatians, Paul defends the doctrine of righteousness through faith alone by defending his apostleship. In the second part, he defends righteousness through faith alone through uh, looking at history and the scripture. And then in this latter part of the book of Galatians, which we're looking at now, he defends righteousness through faith alone uh, from the ethical point of view. And what that means is he is showing, and we've looked at this, that righteousness through faith alone is superior ethically to righteousness through works. Righteousness through faith alone is actually ethically superior to righteousness through works. There are two opposite mindsets you can have, Paul says in chapter 5. Two opposite mindsets you can have. The mind that is set on the Spirit and the mind that is set on the flesh. One produces pride, competition, envy, leading to all sorts of sins, and you can read about them there in chapter 5. And the other mindset produces humility, love, joy, peace, and true service to God and man. Setting your mind, uh, Paul says that living according to these two mindsets, he, he calls this walking according to the Spirit and walking according to the flesh. Walking according to the Spirit means setting your mind on the new creation. Not setting your mind on, the, on life apart from Christ. Not setting your mind on your identity apart from Christ. But setting your mind on your true identity as a Christian in Christ. Walking according to the flesh is setting your mind on the things of the old creation. Setting your mind on yourself. Who you are in and of yourself. What you need to do in and of yourself to be right with God. And we talked about this. These two different mindsets are roots that produce two different, very different fruits. And I also remember that last week we talked about how 
Paul is interested primarily in the effect of these mindsets upon community. So what will the effect of having a mindset set on righteousness through faith alone do to our community versus what will be the effect of setting our mind on righteousness through works do for our community? He's primarily concerned with how it affects the community. Here in chapter 6, Paul proceeds to give us other commandments because as I said um, I think it was last week, that walking according to the Spirit isn't the only commandment that the Bible has for us as Christians. It's just the foundational one that affects and undergirds everything else. Notice in chapter 6, 1 through 10, that the focus, and we'll look at this more, is on community. It is still on how we relate to one another. And these commandments that he gives that are focused on community carry over from chapter 5. These commandments are compatible with and are only able to be fulfilled by one who is walking with their mind set on the Spirit. And this is what we're going to look at today. Okay, deep breath. This morning, we're going to look at verse 1 through 5. Next week, we're going to look at verses 6 through 10. And I'd like to pose this question as we approach the text. for this week and next week. I'd like to frame our investigation of the text that we're going to look at with this question. What would a spirit-filled community look like? What would a spirit-filled community look like? Or in other words, what does a group of people who are walking by the Spirit look like? If we as Christians were walking by the Spirit, What would that look like in our community and in our groups and in our relationships with one another? What would a spirit-filled community look like? I think if you ask that to, if you pose that question, some Christians might think immediately of things like signs and wonders, right? What does a spirit-filled community look like? Well, there'll be miracles, there'll be healings, there'll be speaking in tongues, there'll be all these things. That doesn't seem to be where Paul takes us, isn't it? when he thinks of what a spirit-filled community looks like. I'd like to draw out five marks of a spirit-filled community this morning from the text, and we'll just go through these five. And we'll see the superiority of righteousness through faith to righteousness through works in how it affects our communities. First of all, notice from the text, a spirit-filled community or a a group of people who are walking according to the new creation and what Christ has done, is a a a restorative community. A spirit-filled community is a restorative community. Look at verse 1. Brethren, if, if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, that, that means you who are walking according to the Spirit, you who have your mind set on the Spirit, restore. That's what he tells the person to do. If you're spiritual, if you're walking according to the Spirit, and sin happens, because sin will happen in a Spirit-filled community. We'll never be totally free from sin. Sin will always be something we have to face until we go to be with the Lord. You that are spiritual, restore. He doesn't say you that are spiritual. 
Get as far away from that person as possible. You know, if you're really spiritual, you won't be tainted by them. Run. He doesn't say, you that are spiritual, simply pray for them. You know, if you're really spiritual, pray. Of course, praying for them is good. But he says more than that. If you're spiritual, if you're walking by the Spirit, you'll restore. You'll restore. The word restore means to return to its original state and to make something be what it's supposed to be once again or what it was intended to be again. Have you ever seen the uh, television show American Restoration? And it's a show that's all about restoring things. People bring this man old cars, beat up cars, old furniture, and he will restore it and bring it back to its pristine condition. When sin happens, brothers and sisters, relationships are broken and they don't function right. Can you attest to that? You know, when sin, even in your own families, when a sin happens, all of a sudden there's a break in the way things were. Things are not peaceful anymore. Something needs to be fixed, doesn't it, in the relationship? Restoration brings back the situation to what it was. The word denotes freshness and completeness. So we restore relationships back to their fresh condition and back to a sense of wholeness and completeness. Many commentators have for a long time illustrated this restoration in the body of Christ by pointing to uh, the physical analogy of having a, a joint out of place. So sometimes a bone gets out of its socket or out of its place, and you want to put that bone or that joint back into place and restore it. Notice in the body of Christ, when sin happens, it is like a joint is out of place. One of our members isn't functioning the way that the member is supposed to. Paul doesn't call for amputation. He doesn't call for amputation, but for restoration. Amputation, this is very important, Amputation is what happens when the problem is irreparable, when it can't be fixed. That's why they amputate. We, we can't heal you any other way. The only way to solve this problem is to cut the limb off. And so amputation happens when there is no ability to restore. And Paul does not call for amputation. In fact, he never calls for amputation. And brothers and sisters, this is so important but the message of Christianity is that the destruction that is caused by sin need never be irreparable. The destruction that is caused by sin need never be irreparable or unrestorable. Even in church discipline, when you, when you quote, excommunicate someone, the whole point of that is restoration, not amputation, Right? It's never amputation. There's never in the Bible a sense where nothing can be fixed. Sin is destructive, and sin wants to have the last word. The devil wants sin to happen and the destruction of sin to come, and the devil wants to say there's no way for this to be fixed. But we know that sin is not the last word with God. For there is restoration with God. If we've sinned through Jesus Christ, we can be forgiven, we can be healed, we can be put back into a relationship with God that's correct. And so it is to be in a community that is walking by the Spirit. Sin is not to be the last word in a community, in our community. 
So if you've sinned against someone or if you've been sinned against, yes, it causes destruction, but it doesn't have to be the last word. And I would encourage you, if you have sinned against someone, maybe some person you've sinned against and you've never restored that relationship, through Jesus Christ, I would encourage you to not think that that relationship is irreparable, but to go and be reconciled to your brother. And if you've been sinned against, maybe you're holding it against someone, but the Bible says that through Christ we can forgive and there can be restoration. And I want to encourage us in that, to be a community of restoration, to not let sin have the last word, to not let sin's destructive power um, block us from complete relationships and restorative relationships. And this isn't just a, an exhortation for pastors, brothers and sisters, you know, let the pastors go and restore such a one who sinned. This is simply who is spiritual, who is walking in the spirit. That is to be each and every one of us. Go and restore and go and fix. So first, a spirit-filled community is a restorative community. Second of all, a spirit-filled community responds to sin in gentleness. As he says in verse 1, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness. What that means is you're not rough in your words or in your demeanor. And this isn't a pretended gentleness or a gentleness that is only on the outside. But Paul says in the spirit of gentleness, the person who is walking according to the spirit, setting his mind on the truth, is to go to someone who sinned with a true and real inward gentleness towards them. And this gentleness isn't because sin isn't taken seriously, but it's because sin is taken seriously. And I'd like to share two reasons why when we take sin seriously, we will respond in gentleness. First of all, because gentleness, when you're taking sin seriously, is the way to have effective treatment of the sin. Imagine you have a doctor and he realizes that a bone's been put out of joint. If he takes the situation seriously, he's probably going to be gentle, right? Or if he has to do some surgery or something, he's not just going to say, oh, there's a cancer there. He's not just going to go in roughly and just get the cancer out because getting the cancer out is the only thing that's important. He's caring for the patient and he's taking the situation seriously. Therefore, he's gentle. Matthew Henry wrote, Many needful reproofs lose their efficacy by being given in wrath. But when they are managed with calmness and tenderness and appear to proceed from sincere affection and concern for the welfare of those to whom they are given, they are likely to make a due impression. So he says many good reproofs. Yes, a reproof needs to happen, but it actually loses its its efficacy when it's done roughly. That reminds me of the Proverbs that says, Proverbs 15.1, that a gentle word turns away wrath, but a rough word stirs up anger. And so if we take sin seriously, if we take this situation seriously, it will call for gentleness. Here's another reason why taking sin seriously calls for gentleness. Because the Spirit-filled community or the Spirit-filled person who's walking by the Spirit understands that He is capable of sin too. That's what Paul's getting at here in verse 1. When sin happens in a spirit-filled community, the community knows that this is something that they are capable of too. It doesn't respond with, oh my goodness, I can't believe this happened among us. 
and oh my goodness, this would never be me. A spirit-filled community that has their mindset on the grace of God and the reality of Christ and righteousness through faith alone understands this could be me and I'm not better than this person who sinned. I'm in no way better than this person who sinned. And so we respond in meekness and gentleness because we're not bringing down the hammer and the club on someone who sinned. At the end of verse 1, he says that you're to look unto yourself so that you will not be tempted. I think there's many ways that we can be tempted when someone has sinned. And I probably couldn't list them all. There's so many ways that we could be tempted. Some think uh, one way is that you could be tempted with the same sin. Be careful when you go restore this person that you could be tempted with the same sin. That's probably true. But I think what's worse is being tempted to pride when you're going to another person or when you're confronting someone who has sinned. Watch out that you don't get puffed up with pride thinking that you're better than another person who sinned. And this leads to the third mark in the text of a spirit-filled community, and that is simply that a spirit-filled community responds to sin. A spirit-filled community responds to sin. As I just said, it responds in gentleness, but I want to make the more obvious point that it responds to sin. Because some people think, hey, if I'm living by grace... And if I believe in righteousness through faith alone, and I'm all about salvation by grace, not by works, then we'll just let sin slide. We'll just let sin go. We'll just, we'll just turn a blind eye to all that sin because that's what grace is all about, right? And that's not true. And many people think there's a dichotomy between being loving towards a person and responding or confronting them or rebuking them for their sin. They think, if I love them, I won't say anything because that makes the situation uncomfortable. Or, if I say something, that means I don't love them. And that is not the case. The Spirit-filled community understands that there is no dichotomy between loving and responding to someone who has sinned and addressing the situation to restore it. In fact, it's the loving thing to do when sin happens to... uh, if you are spiritual, to go and to restore them in the spirit of gentleness. I think of Leviticus 19, verse 17. It's the verse right before the verse in the law that says, love your neighbor. The the famous verse, you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. And the verse right before it says that you will not sin against your brother, but you shall love him and rebuke him when you see him in sin. So that verse says, if you love your brother, brother and your neighbor and you see him hurting himself then do something about it for the sake of love so there's no dichotomy a fourth mark from the text what can we learn here about a spirit-filled community a spirit-filled community looks out for and helps one another look at verse 2 a spirit-filled community looks out for and helps one another Bear one another's burdens, Paul says, and so fulfill or thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. It's an awesome thing here that Paul 
says that bearing one another's burdens is equivalent to fulfilling the law of Christ. I wonder how many of us would think that. If we were to ask, what is the fulfilling of the law of Christ? Would we say bearing one another's burdens? Christ's likeness is not, brothers and sisters, simply about overcoming personal vices. It's not simply about overcoming personal vices. Well, Jesus didn't sin, so I'm just going to lock myself in a closet and not sin either. You know? Christ's likeness isn't focused on self and, you know, trying to get rid of your own personal demons and vices. But it's about looking out for and helping others. Caring for others and acting when you see a need for others. That is what fulfilling the law of Christ is according to Paul. It's an amazing statement. And Paul uses this familiar phrase, one another, in verse 2. And he's used it actually frequently um, in, the, in the context of this verse. Look at verse 13 of chapter 5. He says that at the end of verse 13, through love, serve one another. It's basically saying the same thing as bear one another's burdens. Bear one another's burdens or through love, serve one another. And look at verse 15 of chapter 5. Paul uses the phrase one another twice in this verse. If you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. He's concerned with our relationships among ourselves. And we can either serve each other and look out for each other and help one another, or we can bite and devour one another and consume one another. And there's probably no middle there. Like if we're not looking out for and helping one another, we're probably hurting and devouring one another and vice versa. And look at verse 26. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. He uses it again there. So here's a contrast. Instead of being boastful against each other, instead of looking to see that you're better than other people, instead of being competitive or envying another person, look out for another person and help them. Bear one another's burdens. And this fulfills the law of Christ. This phrase, the law of Christ, seems to be an intended distinction between the law of Moses. He doesn't seem to be saying, um, thinking of the law of Moses here, but something else. This is something new with Christ, though the law of Christ is not opposed to the law of Moses. This is what the law of Christ is. It is simply what remained in the ethical universe after the world's encounter with Jesus. The law of Christ is simply what remained in the ethical universe after the world's encounter with Jesus. The world's encounter with Jesus was quick. He came in the first century. He he was a blue-collar worker for most of his life, and nobody really knew who he was. And for about three years, Jesus taught, and then he died for our sins and rose again and ascended into heaven. It was very quick. But what remained from that encounter has lasted and will last forever. And that is the law of Christ. Basically, now that Jesus has come, there's a new way to think and live because of what he has shown us about God. That's what the law of Christ means. Because of what he has shown us about God, there's a new way for us to think about ethics and about how we should relate to one another 
because of what he's shown us about God. Paul's not talking about law here as if law was now a threat for us as Christians. The law of Moses is no longer a threat for us as Christians either. In verse uh, 14, Paul said that the whole law is fulfilled by loving our neighbor as ourselves. He's not threatening us there by saying, if you don't do this, you're going to be damned or you're going to go to hell. Nor is he saying in, cha- in chapter 6, verse 2, that if you don't bear one another's burdens, you're going to be damned and go to hell. Our righteousness is through faith alone. But nonetheless, this is what is right now. This is how things should be. This is what is proper. What we should do in the light of what Christ has shown us is bear one another's burdens. Do you agree? I mean, you don't think of the opposite, right? That now that Christ has come, what we should do is not bear one another's burdens and retreat into ourselves. The preeminent thing here is to serve one another in love because this is what Christ did for us. That's why it's true Christ-likeness. Because that's exactly what Christ did for you. He, he looked out for you. He saw your need. He saw you in, in your sins and under the wrath of God. And not, he saw you approaching an eternity that did not have uh, God in it, but had only his wrath. And he did for us that which we needed him to do. Now this is obviously something we can't do for one another. But Christ looked out for us and he bore our burden in the sense that he came and took our sins and paid the penalty for us and redeemed us from that issue. We can't do that for one another. But the pattern is set. Let us also look out for one another and help each other in the ways that we can and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now there might be an objection here and say, well, isn't looking out for and helping one another, isn't that broader than Christianity? Isn't that what all communities, not just Christian communities do? You know, I say a spirit-filled community is marked by helping one another. And you might say, well, but you could have non-Christian communities that help one another too. But they miss here that it's in light of Christ, it's the helping one another and the bearing of one another's burdens even though we're sinners and not because we're friendlies. And there's the difference, that we should be looking out for one another in helping each other, even when we recognize that another person doesn't love us, another person is not deserving of it, another person is not worthy of it. It has nothing to do with merit or worth or who's my friend. It has everything to do with this unconditional, one-way care that Christ has shown. That's what makes a spirit-filled community so amazing and unique is that we are to look out for and love one another not based upon any worth or merit or deserts. Because I think in other communities you will find people that help each other so long as you're fitting the mold. So long as you haven't offended them. So long as you get along. It will work. The last thing I'd like to share this morning is that a spirit-filled community has an accurate evaluation of itself. A spirit-filled community has an accurate evaluation of itself. That is, its members have an accurate evaluation of themselves. And this is verse 3, 4, and 5. 
If anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another, for each one will bear his own load. Now I admit that these verses here are, are, are difficult to interpret and they're not super clear. They seem to be referring back to verse 1 when Paul says, you that are spiritual. So when sin happens in a community, when someone is caught in a trespass, you that are spiritual, go restore. And then he seems to be saying what he says about evaluating yourself in the light of that. Because many think they're spiritual and they're not. Many think they're spiritual, but they're not. And there's, there's two options here of interpretation in verse 3. We can interpret verse 3, one, like this. Everyone is nothing. And therefore, if anyone thinks they're something, they're deceived. That's one way we can interpret verse 3. If anyone thinks they're something, when, by the way, everyone is actually nothing, you're deceived. So don't think you're something ever. Because if you do, you're deceived because you're always nothing. <laughs> That's one way we can interpret this. The other way to interpret this is make sure you really are something before you think you are. So if you think you're something when you're not, you're deceived. But be sure that when you think you're something, you really are something and not really nothing. <laughs> you see those, the differences there. I think the, how shall we interpret this depends upon how we understand the word something. If by something we mean in and of myself, I have strength, I have merit, I have righteousness, I have worthiness. In and of myself, I have something to offer this community. In and of myself, I have something to offer this poor wretch who just sinned then I think we would agree with option one. If you think that in and of yourself you're something, you're deceived because in and of ourselves we're all nothing. We have no strength, we have no merit, we have no righteousness, we have no worthiness, we really have nothing to offer one another in and of ourselves. But if by something we mean simply spiritual, then Option two would be appropriate. That is, if somebody thinks he's spiritual when he's not, he's deceiving himself. He's deceiving himself. I think that verse four seems to suggest that a person can evaluate himself and his work and find that there is something there in verse four. So I tend to interpret this in option two. That Paul is saying, if you think you're spiritual but you're not, you're deceiving yourself. That doesn't mean that a person can't be spiritual. The interesting thing is, however, that to be spiritual or to be walking by the Spirit and setting your mind on the things of the Spirit actually means that you set your mind on the fact that you are nothing in and of yourself. To be spiritual means setting your mind on the fact that you are nothing and Christ is everything. And that anything that you are that has value or that has something to offer others isn't because of you, but it's because of Christ. 
And so ironically, to be spiritual means recognizing that you are nothing ultimately and that Christ is everything. And so that a man is only something when he realizes he in and of himself is nothing. And you're something not because of yourself, but in and through God. And I believe this is what the boasting is about in verse 4. You're boasting in who you are in God what you are in Christ, what you are in truth, that you evaluate yourself and you see that, there, that you, your identity really is in Christ. And you really do have something to offer another because of the gospel. And this is something you can, be, you can rejoice in and be glad about. And notice he says, and not in regard to another. Most commentaries seem to think that what Paul's saying here is that you're not thinking you're something because you're looking at another person and their faults. And this is basically the way that the world evaluates themselves. They think they're something not because they're correctly evaluating themselves as nothing but as something in Christ, but they think they're something because they look out at other people, they find people who look worse than them, and they go, I really am something because I haven't done that. Right? That's exactly what people think. You go out on the street and ask someone, are you a good person? Do you have righteousness before God? Yes, I do. Why is that? Because I haven't murdered anybody. Like, I'm not like Hitler. I'm not like those people in the prisons. You see? And all they do is they look out and they compare themselves to people out there. And then they think that because they're not like others, they are something. Paul says you need to correctly evaluate yourself so that you can see yourself as you truly are. Either if you're not a Christian, you are nothing, or if you are a Christian, you're something in him. Matthew Henry said, self-conceit, which is thinking you're something in yourself, is but self-deceit. Self-conceit is but self-deceit. And the 18th century Anglican Archbishop Thomas Secker had this helpful comment to make. The reason why there is so little self-condemnation is because there is so little self-examination. That's an interesting statement. Basically what he's saying is that the reason we get proud is because we're not thinking about ourselves enough. It's kind of an interesting statement. We think, I'm proud because I'm thinking about myself too much. And that's true in a sense. That's true in a sense. But According to Secker here, there's another sense in which you're proud because you're not thinking about yourself enough. You're thinking about yourself too little. You're looking at others. You're looking at their, their failings, and you're not evaluating yourself. You're not looking, not at others, but at yourself and asking the question, what am I? According to God's law, what am I? And I firmly believe that if people evaluated themselves and stopped looking at others and they asked themselves, do I have righteousness? Do I have strength? Do I have worth? Do I have merit in light of the law of God? They would actually lose their pride and find out that they, have, that they are nothing. And as Christians, we have this healthy evaluation of ourselves. As spirit-filled Christians, we walk with our mind on the truth. And we realize that in and of myself, I'm nothing but a sinner who deserves damnation. But through faith in Jesus Christ, I am a new creation. And I glory in God for who I am in Christ and for the life that I have in Christ.
That's a healthy evaluation of yourself. You're not thinking about who you are compared to others, but who you are in Christ. Is verse 5 a contradiction with verse 2? In verse 2, he says, bear one another's burdens. In verse 5, he says, everyone will bear his own. I don't think it's a contradiction. Paul wouldn't contradict himself in so short a space. First of all, there's a different Greek word that Paul uses. Burden and load are different. And there's a, it's a totally different thought. It's a totally different point that he's making in verse 2 and in verse 5. Verse 2 is an imperative. It's telling us what to do. Bear one another's burdens. That's the right thing to do. But verse 5 is not an imperative. It's simply an indicative. It's simply a statement of fact. And it appears to be a Hebrew idiom common among Jewish writings and thought. And it means this, that when we are evaluated or judged, we will be evaluated for who we are and for what we've done and not for what somebody else is. That seems to be the idea. You'll bear your own load means when being judged and evaluated, it's not about who other people are and what you are in comparison to them. It's simply about what you are before God in comparison to his law. And I, and I pray that we would all learn that lesson, that we would help, that we would evaluate ourselves in the appropriate way. So I asked the question at the beginning, what does a spirit-filled community look like? Is it a community that's got miracles flying out of their ears, signs and wonders, I think the uh, church at Corinth is instructive. There was a church with lots of miracles and spiritual gifts that were taking place, but Paul called them fleshly and not spiritual because they weren't walking according to the Spirit. They weren't walking in love and service to one another. They weren't fulfilling the law of Christ. They weren't a community that was restorative. According to the book of Galatians here in this text, I draw five things from the text of what a spirit-filled community looks like. It's a restorative community. It responds to sin within it, within itself. It responds in gentleness. It looks out for and helps one another. And it has an accurate evaluation of itself. And this is only going to happen if you and I as individuals within the community walk according to the Spirit, walk according to the truth and apply these things to ourselves. Are these things that you can apply to yourself and take home? You know, thinking about restoration when someone sins against you, gentleness. And I think we can all look out for and help one another more than we do. A spirit-filled community is one that lives in the light of what Christ has done. May we all walk by the Spirit and become together a spirit-filled community. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your instructions that you give to us, instructions that bring health and that bring life and restoration to poor sinners. Thank you that through the truth of the gospel, Lord, we can experience a life of love together, bearing with one another's faults, 
and helping one another on this road. Thank you that you did that for us. Help us to remember that each day, that you have ultimately cared for us and helped us. Please take this message um, and put it into our hearts, Lord. Thank you that your word is powerful and speaks through um, me, Lord, even when I am uh, can be unclear and stumbling over my own words, Lord. Thank you that the truth is what is powerful and it's the truth that really changes us. Thank you for the amazing gospel that we believe. We bless your name in Jesus' name, amen.